Chapter 20 of The Beloved Vagabond by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 20 I had worked till the last glimmer of daylight at the portrait, which was now approaching completion. That's the end of it for today, said I, laying my palette and brushes aside and regarding the picture. Joanna rose from her chair by the fire where she had been sewing for the last hour, and stood by my side. The morning room, which had a clear northeast light through the French window leading into the garden, had been assigned to me as a studio, and here, sometimes on a murky afternoon, Joanna, who preferred the bright chintz-covered place to the gloomy drawing-room, honoured me with her company. Mrs Rushworth was asleep upstairs, and Parago had gone for a solitary walk. We were cosily alone. It pleased my lady to be flattering. It is wonderful how a boy like you can do such work, for you are a boy, Astigo, she said with one of her bright comrade-like smiles. In a few years you will have the world at your feet imploring you to paint his portrait. You will fulfil the promise, won't you? What promise, madame? I asked. The promise of your life now. It is not everyone who does. You won't allow outside things to send you away from it all. She had slung the stole which she was embroidering for the vicar across her shoulders, and, holding the two ends, looked at me wistfully. I owe it to my master, madame, said I, to work with all my might. If only he had had such a master in the old days, she sighed, he would have been by now a famous man, full of honours, with all the world can give in his possession. Hasn't he the best the world can give now that he has found you again? said I, somewhat shyly. Joanna gave a short laugh. You talk sometimes like one's grandfather. I suppose that is because you became a student of philosophy at a tender age. Yes, your master has found me again. But after all, what is a woman? Just a speck of dust on top of the world. She half seated herself on my painting stool, her back to the picture. Tell me, Astico, is he at least happy? Can you doubt it, madame? I cried warmly. I do so want him to be happy, Astico. You see, it was all through me that he gave up his career and took to the strange life he has been leading, and I feel doubly responsible for his future. Can you understand that? Her blue eyes were very childish and earnest. For all my love of Parago, I suddenly felt something like pity for her, as for one who had undertaken a responsibility that weighed too heavily on slender shoulders. For the first time, it struck me that Parago and Joanna might not be a perfectly matched couple. Intuition prompted me to say, My master is utterly happy, but you must give him a little time to accustom himself to the new order of things. That's it, she said. Then there was a pause. You are such a wise boy, she continued, that perhaps you may be able to do something for me. I can't do it myself, and it's horrid of me to talk about it, but... Do you think you might suggest to him that people of our class don't visit the Black Boar? I don't mind it a bit, but other people, my cousin Major Walters, said something a day or two ago, and it hurt. They don't understand Gaston's continental ways. It is natural for a man to go to a cafe in France, but in England things are so different. I promised to convey to Barico the taboo of the Black Boar, and then I asked her which she preferred, England or France. She shivered, and a gleam of frost returned to her eyes. 
I never want to see France again. I was so unhappy there. I'm trying to persuade Monsieur de Nerac to live in London. He can find as much scope for his art there as in Paris, can't he? Surely, said I. And you'll come too, she said with a flash of gaiety that was one of her charms. You'll have a beautiful studio nearby and we'll all be happy together. She jumped off the painting stool and, having bidden me light the gas, resumed her task of embroidering the stole by the fireside. It's pretty, isn't it? she asked, holding it up for my inspection. I agreed. She had considerable talent for art needlework. Gaston doesn't appreciate it, she remarked, laughing. He disapproves of clergymen. They have scarcely been in his line, I answered apologetically. They will have to be. Oh, you'll see. I'll make him a model Englishman before very long. I'm afraid you will find it rather difficult, madame, said I. Do you think I'm afraid of difficulties? Isn't everything difficult? Is it easy for you to get everything to come out on that canvas just as you want it? If you could dash it off in a minute, it wouldn't be worth doing. As you yourself said, I'll have to give Gaston time. I seated myself on the fender seat close by her chair, and for some minutes watched the clever needle work its golden way through the white silk. No one has ever had such dainty fingers and delicate wrists. You mustn't think because I have spoken about Mr. de Nerac that I am discontented. I wouldn't have him a bit altered integrally, for there is no one like him living. And I'm utterly happy in the fulfilment of the great romance of my life. Isn't it wonderful, Astico? Have you ever heard the like outside a storybook? To meet again after thirteen years and to find the old... the old... Love, I whispered, as I saw that she suddenly blushed at the word. As strong and true as ever, it is the inner things that matter, Astico. The outside ones are nothing. Dreadful things have happened to each of us during those years, but they haven't clouded the serenity of our souls. Ah, oh, madame, said I, with a smile. It strikes me now that I was slightly impertinent. I am sure my master said that. Yes, she admitted, raising wide, innocent eyes. How did you guess? You yourself once detected echoes in me. We both laughed. That is what brought us together, Astico. You seemed to regard him as a god rather than as a man, and I loved you for it. She put out her left hand. I touched it with my lips. That's a charming French way we haven't got in England, and you did it very nicely, Astico. I almost scowled at the servant who entered with the announcement that tea was waiting in the drawing room. I think of all human utterances I have heard fall from the lips of those I love and honour, that formula of Parago's echoed by Joanna was the most pathetically vain. And they believed it. Indeed, it was the vital article of their faith. On its truth, the whole fabric of their love depended. It counted for nothing in Joanna's romantic eyes that the brilliant, eager youth, rich in the glory of his rising sun, had won her heart long ago. She showed me his photograph. Alas, poor Parago, was now the tongue-tied spectre, the tale of whose ungentle past was scarred upon his face, who stalked grotesquely comfortless in his ill-fitting clothes, who with the art of dress had lost in the boozing kens of Europe the graces of social intercourse. It counted for nothing that he was middle-aged, deserted forever by the elusive wanton inspiration, condemned, she knew it in her heart, to artistic barrenness in perpetuity. 
he counted for nothing that her gods awakened his contempt, and his gods her fear. He counted for nothing that they had scarcely a single taste or thought in common. Half-educated, half-bred boy that I was, I vow I entered a sweeter chamber of intimacy in my dear lady's heart than was open to Parago. You see, in spite of all the deadening influences, all the horror of her married life, she had remained a child. When the Comte de Venuy had found her unforgiving in the matter of the false announcement of Parago's death, he had left her pretty much to herself, and had gone after the strange goddesses, the ignoble Astaroths, beloved by a man of his type. Month had followed month, and year had followed year, and she had not developed. His family, nationalist and devout of the old school, regarded him, rightly, as a renegade from their traditions, and regarded Joanna, wrongly, as the English heretic who had seduced him from the paths of orthodoxy. Their relations with Joanna were of the most frigid. On the other hand, the society of Hebraic finance, in which the Comte de Venise found profit and entertainment, was repugnant to the delicately nurtured Englishwoman. She led a lonely existence. I have so few friends in Paris, were almost her first words to me on the day of our meeting outside the Hotel Bristol. She went through the world, her lips set in a smile and her dear eyes frozen, and her heart yearning for the sheltered English life, with its rules for guidance and its barriers of convention, its pleasant little routine of duties, and its gentle communion of unemotional temperaments. Her eleven years' married life had been merely a suspension of existence. A few excursions into the unusual had been the scared adventures of a child. Her romance was the romance of a child, her gracious simplicity and her caressing adorableness, which made my boy's love for her a passionate worship which has lasted to this day, when we both are old and only meet to shake heads together in palsied sympathy, were the essential charms of a child. How should she understand the parago that I knew? His soul still shone the stainless radiance that had dazzled her young eyes. That was all that mattered. It was easy to convert the outer man to convention. It was the simplest thing in the world to make the chartered libertine of talk accept the index espurgatorius of subjects meet for discussion, to regulate the innate vagabond by the clock, to bring the pantheistic pagan of wide spiritual sympathies, for Parago was by no means an irreligious man, into the narrowest sphere of Anglicanism. The colossal nature of her task did not occur to her, and there again she exhibited a child's unreasoning confidence. Nor did it occur to her to bid him throw off his undertaker's garb and gloom and to adopt his free theories of life and conduct. At her mother's knee she had learned the first commandment, Thou shalt have none other gods but me. And Joanna's god, though serving her sweet innocent soul all the reasonable purposes of a deity, was Matthew Arnold's gigantic clergyman in a white tie. In obedience to his maxims alone lay salvation, Joanna's conviction was unshakable. As a matter of course, Parago must walk the same path. There was not another one to walk. Parago accepted meekly my report of Joanna's taboo of the black boar. Whatever Madame de Vaunay says is right, I was forgetting that the refrain of the ballade of the immortal Villon, Tout au taverne et au fil, which was that of my life for so many years, is no longer.
I wonder what the devil the refrain is now. Ha! he exclaimed, clapping his hand on my shoulder in his old violent way. I have it. Also Villon. Guess, didn't I teach you all the ballads by rote as we wandered through Savoy? Yes, master, said I. But I could only think of the one that came into my Byronic little head on the occasion of my first meeting with Joanna. Bien oro kiria nia, which in the present circumstances was clearly not applicable. The romantic lover does not base his conduct on the formula that blessed is he who has nothing to do with women. What is it, master? I ask. Mon cette fois je vois vivre et mourir. I did not understand. In which faith do you wish to live and die? I asked. He made a gesture of disappointment. He too was a child in many respects. You must go back to Paris to sharpen your wits, my son. I thought I had trained you to capture illusion, one of the most delicate and satisfying arts of life. Did I not preface my remarks by saying that Madame de Vernouille was infallible? By which I mean that she is the mouthpiece of all the sweeter kinds of angels. That is the faith, my little Astico. And he repeated to himself a rascal poet's refrain to his most perfect poem. En cette fois, je vois vivre et mourir. But that, said I, wishing to prove that I had not forgotten my scholarship, is a prayer to Our Lady made by Villon at the quest of his mother. You are as hopeless as mine host of the Black Boar, said my master, and, being wound up to talk, it was during the after-dinner interval before joining the ladies, launched into a half-hour's disquisition on the philosophic value of elusiveness, addressing me as if I had been his audience at the Lotus Club, or a choice band of disciples at the Café Delphine. In the drawing-room, I played my piquet with Mrs. Rushworth, while Parago sat with Joanna in a far corner. I could not help noticing how little they spoke. Parago's torrent of words had dried up, and the talk seemed to flow in unsatisfying driblets. Why did he not entertain her with his newly adopted romantical motto from Villon? Why did he not express, in terms of which he was such a master, his fantastic adoration? Why, even, did he not continue his disquisition on the philosophic value of elusiveness? Anything, thought I, as I declared at Quinzième and Fourteen Kings, rather than this staccato exchange of commonplaces, which I was sure neither Joanna nor himself in the least enjoyed. In fact, my dear Joanna yawned. Presently, Major Walters was announced. He had come, he explained apologetically, on trustee business and required Joanna's signature to an important document. She flew to him with a pretty air of delight, drew him by the arm to an escritoire in a corner of the room, and laughed girlishly as she inked her fingers and confessed her powerlessness to comprehend the deed she was signing. Parago, after a very cold exchange of greetings with Major Walters, sat down by our card table and watched the game with the funereal expression he always wore when he desired to exhibit his entire correctness of demeanour. To Mrs Rushworth's placid remarks during the deals, he made the politest of monosyllabic replies. Meanwhile, his dingy white tie, which he never could arrange properly, he dressed for dinner each night without a murmur, had worked up beyond his collar, and, encircling his lean neck like a pussycat's ribbon, gave him a peculiarly unheroic appearance. The signing over, Joanna kept Major Walters by the escritoire and chatted in a lively manner. As far as I could hear, 
and I am afraid my attention was sadly abstracted from my game, they talked of the same unintelligible things as the Tuesday afternoon. Guests, personalities, local doings and what not. She ran to fetch the stole, over which Parago not glowed with rapturous enthusiasm. Apparently, Major Waters said just the thing concerning it her heart craved to hear. Her silvery voice rippled with pleasure. A while later, he must have returned to some business matter which he declared settled, for she put her hand on his sleeve in her impulsive caressing way, and her eyes beamed gratitude. I don't know what I should do without you, Dennis. You bear all my responsibilities on your strong shoulders. How can I thank you? He bent down and said something in a low voice, at which she blushed and laughed reprovingly. His remark did not offend her in the least. She was enjoying herself. He drew himself up with a smile. It was then that I noticed particularly how well-bred and clean-limbed he was, how easily his clothes fitted. It seemed as impossible for Major Walter's tie to work up round his neck as for his toes to protrude through his boots. He gave one the impression of having followed cleanliness of thought and person all his life. I began to have a sneaking admiration for the man. I beheld in its openness that which I had often seen pierce through Parago's travesty of mountain bankery or rags, but which singularly enough seemed hidden beneath his conventional garb the inborn and incommunicable quality of the high-bred gentleman. I set to dreaming of it, and scheming out a portrait in which that essential quality could be expressed, whereby I played the fool with my hand and incurred the mild rebuke of my adversary, as she repeaked and capoted me, and triumphantly declared the game. There was a short general conversation. Then Major Walters, declining the offer of whisky and soda in the dining-room, took his leave. Parago accompanied him to the front door. When he returned, Mrs Rushworth retired, as she always did after her game, and Joanna, instead of remaining with us for an hour, as usual, pleaded fatigue and went to bed. Master, said I, boyishly full of my new idea, do you think Major Walters would sit to me? I don't mean as a commission, of course I couldn't ask him, but for practice. I should like to paint him as a knight in armour. Why this lunatic notion? asked my master. I explained. He looked at me for some time, very seriously. There was a touch of pain in his tired blue eyes. You are right, my little Astico, he said, and I was wrong. My perception is growing blunt. I regarded our friend as having fallen out of the war office box of tin soldiers. Your vision has been keener. Breed counts for much, but for it to have full value there must be the life as well. All the same, the notion of asking Major Walters to post you in a suit of armour is lunatic, and the sooner you finish Mrs Rushworth and get back to Jano's, the better. There is also Blanquette, who must be bored to death in the Rue des Saladiers, with no one but Narcisse to bear her company. He put a cigarette into his mouth, but for some time did not light it, although he held a match ready to strike in his fingers. His thoughts held him. My son, he said at last, I would give the eyes out of my head to have my violin. Why, master? I asked. Because, said he, when one is afflicted with a divine despair, there is nothing for it like fiddling it out of the system. End of chapter 20